You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. It's good to be with you again. Who missed church last week? One person. Wow, that's really encouraging. Thanks so much, everybody. Real confidence booster going into the new year. I missed church last week. I find if I miss one week, I start to, to fall away. Like, I, really, I, need, I need you guys. You keep me Christian, all right? God uses you to keep me close to Jesus. It's true. And um, I do like taking the last week off of the year. I think it's a nice pattern to have um, and to focus on um, hospitality uh, for friends and neighbours. And, but I did miss you guys. Um, I've been kind of chomping at the bit to get to this Sunday because we begin this series. This is volume six of the Psalms of Summer. This is the sixth time we've done it. And um, it's one of my favorite times of year just because I love the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is for me like a, a prescription um, that, that I take to get out of the, the dryness and funk that I find myself in so often. You know, like when you've, you've just gradually and not for any particular reason fallen away from walking closely with the Lord. Maybe you've become a little bit dry in your affections towards him. For me, the Psalms is what drags me out. It's, it's the medicine that I take to overcome that inevitable dryness. And um, so all throughout my Christian life, I've spent certain seasons of life just reading a Psalm every morning. Nothing more complicated than that. But the reason that they're so powerful is because I think they speak genuinely, honestly, unabashedly to our real life experience. Um, the great reformer John Calvin called the book of Psalms a anatomy of all parts of the soul. What he means is like everything we experience in our souls is written down somewhere in the book of Psalms. Somewhere in these 150 songs, you will find sort of echoing whatever you're experiencing when you read it. Um, I believe this is the, the gift that God gives us in poetry and songwriting. So these are poems that are meant to be sung. The gift that he gives us in poetry and songwriting is this... So here's what I think is going on. Ready? This is my philosophy of poetry. If you don't care about poetry, I apologise. I love it, all right? Everyone loves songs, all right? Everyone everyone has a favourite song. So here's what I think is going on. I think that the reality of what we experience in this life, the reality of love, of grief, of anger, of joy, those realities, right? The experiences that we have of seeing a a child being born, getting married, grieving for a loved one who's died, right? These experiences that we have are so big, so powerful, that they're beyond our ability to explain them, express them, expose them, right? We don't, we can't, when we experience something great, we, we just, words fail us. It's a common expression, like I'm lost for words, right? Because this or that thing happened. The gift of poetry and songwriting is that it bridges the gap between what we experience and our ability to express it. Poetry and songwriting employs language that goes beyond what we could say in mere conversation. And that's what's going on in the Psalms. These songwriters, gifted poets, have written down by the inspiration of the Spirit things that, that explain the experiences that go beyond our words. 
So that's why I love jumping into this book. That's why it helps me when I'm dry. And that's why I love jumping into it in summer along with you guys, because we find here finally some words that express what we feel or what we want to feel. And, the, and it runs the whole gamut of emotions from deep joy, like we're going to talk about this morning, gratitude, thanksgiving, through to anger and, and desire for vengeance. All of that is outlined here in the Psalms. And so maybe if you're still picking up New Year's re- resolutions or you're trying to replace the ones you've already failed at, amen, maybe you just want to say, for the first 150 days of the year, I'm going to read a Psalm each day. That would be a good resolution to make. And um, I believe God will, will encourage you as you do that. And I'm praying he'll encourage us as we get into Psalm 100 this morning. This is a psalm of thanksgiving. Just so you know, in, in our Bibles, that, that the, the words in bold, um, that, uh, like the title of the psalm, that's something we made up. It's just a helpful editor's note. So this one says, be thankful, right? It explains what the psalm is about. The next line in italics, that's in the Bible. So that's inspired by God. So we read that bit. Don't just skip ahead to the, to the normal part of the psalm. You read the first part, a psalm of thanksgiving. The, the guy who wrote this wants us to know, if nothing else, this is a psalm of thanksgiving. Great to see a few new faces here this morning, um, but most of you know that I've I had this profound experience as a 19-year-old kid, spent a couple of years in America working with inner-city, underprivileged uh, African-American kids out of Pittsburgh, a uh, very impoverished city in, in the U.S., and uh, what, was, um, what struck me from the beginning was the fact that for the first two weeks I was there, we had to do this lengthy, intensive orientation and it was the orientation was not about like where to find the toilets or something it was all about these kids like what what do we need to know particularly about these kids these inner city underprivileged african-american kids so two weeks on the sociology of inner city projects um government housing and, um, and then particularly, how do we communicate the gospel to kids who have never heard anything about the gospel before? And so we did this, and, and it went beyond just theory. Like, we had to learn restraints. Like, how do you restrain a kid who is potentially, like a 12-year-old who's potentially twice your size? Like, some of these kids were big dudes. And I had the oldest kids, the, the 12-year-old boys, and... Um, I'm not ashamed to say that there were some moments that were a bit dicey um, in confrontation with some of those kids. But after having two weeks, being, spending two weeks um, going through the worst case scenarios of what to expect, what I was struck by in the first week that we actually had the kids with us was just how, um, just how attentive and engaged they were with what we were doing with them. Like everything from like teaching them how to go fishing. We were in this camp that was out in the countryside, multi-million dollar camp funded by a, a benefactress. Um, had all had amazing things. It had grass, for example. I learned that a lot of the kids that I was taking care, care of had never walked on grass before. All right, so this is this is where they're coming from. And what I found was that that even though we were taught to, what to do uh, if 
if the kids went crazy, almost always they were completely engaged and, um, and attentive with what we were doing, whether it was fishing or teaching them about David and Goliath, all right? They were really engaged and attentive. And so I went to, there was two uh, social workers who were at the camp, and I went to them and said, you, you orientated us to expect these kids to be really bad kids. And what I'm finding is that they're actually really good kids. And to this day, I've never met a 12-year-old boy who is more attentive, more mature, more engaged, ever. And the girl said to me, this is what's going on. These kids are grateful kids. They, they are grateful. And I said, why are they grateful? Because we've got this cool basketball court. And, and she said, yeah, it is that. But it's also, she said, every one of your boys, so I had uh, about a dozen boys, said every one of your boys has never met their dad. Like, statistically, fact. They've, none of them have ever met their dad. And now you're here and you're like, you care about them. You're engaging with them. You're teaching them. You're playing with them. And, and she said, their response to that is just utter gratitude. That they will not take you for granted. And that's why their behaviour is so good and they're so engaged and so on. There is this, this profound power in gratitude and the psalmist knows this well. That's why I wrote this psalm. He wants us, in, in reading this psalm, not just to learn something theoretically, but he wants us to imbibe it. He wants us to, to soak in it, and he wants it to change us. So what we've got in this psalm is a strategy for life. It's a, it's a prescription that will change your life if you take it up, if you actually practice what he is preaching in this psalm. So enough talk, let's jump in. Grab a Bible or look on the screen and we're going to start off at verse 1 and 2. So again, a psalm of thanksgiving. Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to God. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Now, here's what's interesting to me. He, he starts off this psalm telling us to do something. All of this stuff is doing. Shout, serve, sing, right? Doing. He wants us to do these things with thanksgiving and joy and triumph. Now, here's what I know about us, our culture. We... When we're told to do something with gladness or joy or triumph, we will critique that and often object to doing it because why? Because I don't feel like it. I don't feel like it. We in our culture, some of the first time in human history, lead with our emotions we're very emotional, very emotionally driven. And so we'll say, well, I would love to stand up and raise my hands and sing joyful to, to God, but I don't feel that way. This is a foreign concept to these people 3,000 years ago. The people of Israel understood this. They understood this. When it comes to thanksgiving and gratitude, doing precedes feeling. 
they understood that if you don't feel like doing it, then you should do it, and that will give voice to and expression of the feeling. And so they worked this into their, their life. They work this into their whole calendar. They have a whole liturgical calendar which includes feasts and celebrations and and their whole liturgy of worship which includes psalms and hymns of thanksgiving. We did this until really recently. So if you go over to the prayer book, the Anglican prayer book written in 1662, there is throughout the service thanksgiving, right? When you come to communion, the, the, the whole section is called the Great Thanksgiving. They've worked it into it so that we will do it because they understand that doing precedes feeling. I think this is really important for us. And listen, if you're married or if you're a parent, you know this is true, right? In fact, everyone knows this is true. If you just did what you feel like doing, you would be alone, very alone. Definitely not married. You would have abandoned your kids a long time ago, right? The first time you had to change a nappy, I don't feel like this, right? If you, if you actually just went with your, how you feel in your, in your heart, if you actually followed your heart, which is the worst advice anyone has ever given anyone, right, you would be possibly dead, definitely alone. What we know is if we want a successful marriage, if we want to be good parents, we need to do even when we don't feel. And if we continue to do, then inevitably the feelings will come. The, the flowers of feeling and emotion grow in the, in the ground of consistency and, and doing. Are you with me? Come on, guys. It's obvious, I know, but it's so important. It, 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 it grinds against what we experience in, in, in the prevailing culture around us. What we know for sure is that in Western civilization, there is an epidemic of depression and anxiety. That's without, without question. It's, and, and we know for sure that in cultures that are not westernized, are not affluent, they don't experience the same levels of depression and anxiety. That seems counterintuitive. Some people, some people have surmised or theorized that part of that is that in western civilization we have lost the ability to express thanksgiving gratitude and thanksgiving where it still remains in other cultures and they've made it part of their liturgy we have lost it even in that great nation of thanksgiving in america where they have this great holiday of thanksgiving what has it turned into a day for shopping right the opposite of gratitude i need more It's amazing how quickly we can do this. We turn gratitude into a sense of lack. I did some, I've been doing actually for a year or so now some some pretty intensive research into this whole thing about gratitude. And there's a great organisation that I'm a big fan of um, called the Resilience Project. Um, they, they might have come to your school at some point. They get around, they came to our kids' school just down here at Corrie Creek. They're all about, um, they're, they're all about um, trying to help kids develop resilience because they see that as an antidote or at least a, a mitigation against the inevitable mental um, health epidemic that we're experiencing. So a way to avoid depression and anxiety is to 
um, help our kids be more resilient. And they've identified some things like um, you need to, to help your kids become more um, empathetic. If they're more empathetic, then they'll be less anxious. Um, uh, the other one is... Um, there's another one that I've forgotten. You can look it up online, Resilience Project. Um, the third one is gratitude. If kids are more grateful for what they have, they'll be less depressed and anxious as adults. This is ju- these are just these are undisputed facts. One thing that they do is um, they encourage people to adults and children to every day write down, like literally with a pen and paper, do the action even if it precedes the feeling, the action of writing down three things that you're grateful for from today or three things that went well for you today. And, and here's what they found in the research. If you do that, if you write down three things that you're grateful for, three things that went well for you, if you do that for 21 days consecutively, there will be a measurable decrease in depression and anxiety in, in you and an increase in happiness and well-being. And it, and it increases exponentially up to about 42 days and then maintains from there on in. If you do this, if you institute the practice, the liturgy of thanksgiving and of gratitude. Now, th- that's a secular organisation who is just illuminating what we already know from here. And how much more do we have to be thankful for than, you know, I... Uh, whatever, material blessings that might come to mind. Otherwise, we have these great truths to reinforce the things that we're grateful for. That's what he's going to get to in just a second. But the point is that the action precedes the feeling, all right? There's something about acknowledging this great thing, acknowledging this great blessing that changes, like rewires your brain. If you are alive in 2019, then your brain from birth has been wired, has been wired so that you're prone to notice the things you don't have rather than the things you do. Everyone, like, this is, this, is, this is not written in Psalm 100. This is true, okay? And all truth is God's truth, all right? So listen to this. You have been programmed. And this is not big, some big conspiracy theory, all right? This is not like look for the barcode on the back of your neck. This is, just, this is just the way our culture works. The machine of, of marketing and advertising has programmed you, whether you know it or not, to look for the things you don't have. Why? Because then you will continue to spend to get the things that you want, right? It's just, it's obvious. You're going to have to do something. You're going to have to do. You're going to have to act to rewire your brain. The good news is that you can and that it can happen in 21 days. The research shows us. Part of that is writing three things each, each, week, uh, each day. Part of that is coming to church each week and praising God rewires you, undoes the, the poisoning. So it's about acknowledging. It's about actually giving voice to those things we're grateful for. That's what he says. Verse 3, check it out. Acknowledge. That's a, that's a doing thing. 
Don't just think about it. Acknowledge. Give voice to. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his, his people, the sheep of his pasture. There's three things you can write down today. Three things you're grateful for. The Lord is God. Right? He's saying Yahweh, our God, our Lord is God. He's not one option in a pantheon of of competing gods. He is God. It's true what he says about himself from the beginning in the book of Exodus. I am who I am. Like, who I am, my identity, God says, is not in reference to anything else. I simply am. I am eternal. I am holy. That is, I am outside of everything else going on. I am. And so he says, acknowledge the Lord is God. That should take your anxiety level down a little bit. Why? Because one of the main drivers of anxiety is this lie. I am God. And if I'm God, then the gap between what I'm capable of and what I should be capable of as God is filled by anxiety. Do you understand what I'm saying? If I'm God, then I should be able to do all these things. Reality is, I can't do any of those things. The gap between those two things is filled by pure worry. So take a moment to acknowledge you are not God. In fact, the Lord is God. What does he say about you and your identity? Well, you're made by him. You are his creature, his creation. You are made by him and you are his. So not only is the Lord God, Yahweh is Lord above all other gods. He is a creator of all that is and even wonder of wonders. Like that would be enough, right? That would be enough for us to praise him. He's this great creator. Look around in the creation. See what he's made. Praise God. But... It goes further. We are not only his creatures, but we are his creatures. We belong to him. He is not just creator, he is father. Like that thing that happened to those kids who had never met their dad when I came in and just cared about them, that thing that triggered that great sense of thanksgiving and gratitude for the little that I did to him, for them, how much more? Or do we be, be, we be filled with gratitude and thanksgiving when we know that our heavenly Father made us and loves us? We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. That means we don't just belong to him, but we're cared for by him like a shepherd cares for sheep. Cared for, guided, provided for, protected. All of these things are true about God and true about us. There's your three things for today. If you get stuck, just go back to those three. God's identity is God above all gods, creator, father, shepherd, our identity is his, his creation, 
his children, his, his sheep, his little lambs that he takes care of. He wants us to know that in our hearts. He wants us to know that right in the fibre of our being. Before any other distortions come in, base level, we need to know that is true and that does not change. And then he takes us back to doing. Verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. His gates and his courts, right? They're, they're um, parts of the temple. So for the people of Israel, Old Covenant, in order to praise and bless and worship God, you have to get into the temple first. That's where worship happens. That's where God resides. And so he says, as you do that, as you come into his gates and his, and his courts, then, then praise him. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. The beautiful truth that we have, which goes way beyond what these people experience. The beautiful truth is that we have no temple in the temporal sense. We have a temple here. Like each one of us is God's temple. Each one of us is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God has blown open what he began in the old covenant and made it an everyday reality for us. So if you're a temple, then what it means to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, give thanks to him and bless his name, what that that means is making all of life all about Jesus, right? Because all of life can be praise and thanksgiving. You don't have to wait for Saturday to get to the temple. Like every waking moment you're in the temple. God is available to you, present with you, and so every waking moment can be thanksgiving and praise and thanks and blessing his name. What does this mean for our church? Right, this gathering together. Again, this is not a temple. We've got a hundred temples here. But what does it mean when we come together? Well, the same applies. Because everywhere you are, it applies. So when you're gathered here together as God's people, this applies. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Now here's what I, this is what's been on my heart, right? Quite heavy this past week is this burden I'm feeling that I would just love... 2019, and I know this is arbitrary, like who cares what year it is or what date, but it's just, it's an opportunity, okay? I would love 2019, in 2019, for us as a community to experience an increase in joy and thanksgiving in our meeting together, all right? So I, I believe that's going to happen. Some call me naively optimistic, and they're probably right. But I believe that's going to happen. Why? Because I believe God wants it to happen. And he is the Lord, the God of the heavens and the earth. He made us. We belong to him. What I believe God is looking for is an active participation from us with him in what he already wants to happen, which is an increase of joy and thanksgiving in our meeting together. 
Now let me just, let me just, um, because you guys didn't overwhelm me with amens as I said that, let me just try and maybe intercept some objections that might come to mind as we think about this. Like, the first objection we've already talked about. The first objection is, well, I don't feel like it. You want me to raise my hands and sing loud and, you know, jump in with an amen in the sermon or something? I don't feel like that. We've already talked about that. That might be true. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Your doing will precede your feeling. I know for a fact that many people in this church, I know this because you've said it to me, many people in this church say to me, oh, you know, in the service, I, I wanted to start clapping in that song, but then I thought, oh, I better not. Or, or I, 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 really, I, just, I really agreed with that point that you said, and I wanted to say something, but I just... I, just, I don't know why that happens. I don't know why the people in this church who are, generally speaking, happy, Welcoming, engaging, enjoying life, step into this environment and, and a blanket gets thrown over them, a wet blanket. I don't know why that is. I thought about it this week. I thought maybe it's me. Because when I'm, sometimes when I'm really into something, I tend to withdraw rather than go outward, right? So I, te- I tend to like, think about it a lot and process it. And so maybe it's me. But then I thought, you're just not that powerful. <laughs> There's no way that I'm overwhelming everyone with my particular proclivities. Amen. Right? <laughs> Nicely done. And I thought maybe it's uh, maybe it's the, it's the it's the you know Church of England. Church of England is so somber, and people in the Church of England don't have any shoulder muscles. <laughs> Even that is a myth. Like. That thing about England being really subdued and withdrawn and, 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 and suppressed, that's a, that's a post-Victorian era thing. That's a recent thing. And there's hardly any Anglicans in this church, right? Let's just be real. Most of you have come from other denominations, and we don't care about that. We love being Anglican. We love the, the historical grounding it gives us. It doesn't, it doesn't prescribe the way we are. So I don't know what's going on, but I'm just wanting us to kind of declare war on it this morning. I don't want us ever to sing a song and have the thought, you know, maybe Jesus is still in the grave, the way we're singing this. Like, if this sounds more like a dirge, like a funeral song, than a resurrection song, then maybe we're not doing it right. Thought. I know we can do this. I know I know that we can experience 
joy and thanksgiving and gratitude to a greater degree than what we have in the past. And I know that it can be part of what defines us culturally. I know that. And, and I know that it's possible to get there without contriving it, without just blacking out all the light and turning up the smoke machines, right, contriving it. I know it's possible to do that because real joy really exists. Maybe you're still doubting this. Let me give you an illustration of how I know this is true. I've been to the MCG with 100,000 people, mainly the kinds of people who you think would normally be kind of a bit emotionally subdued. I mean, like men, right? I went there a few years ago. My, I, I, am, I'm, I have this kind of almost idolatrous relationship with Liverpool Football Club, the, the soccer team, right? I've had to repent of it throughout my life. It goes back to the 80s, right? Just, it's, just, it's part of who I am. I, I, I'm up at ridiculous hours of the night and the morning watching this team play football, soccer. I went there a couple of years ago to the MCG. They played there. There was 100,000. There wasn't a spare seat. Before... Liverpool play home games. They play the song by Jerry and the Pacemakers, You'll Never Walk Alone. Everyone sings it. It happened to 100,000 people at the MCG. We were all on our feet with our hands raised and not a dry eye on the house as we sang, You'll Never Walk Alone. That proves it. It proves that there is within us this capacity for real joy and incorporate enjoyment as we praise together. It wasn't contrived. It happened. Now, why did it happen? I've thought about this. Why did it happen? Why was it not the case that 100,000 people were just going, oh, this is awkward. Just get on with the game. Why did that not happen? i tell you why I think it was. That kind of thing happens, the kind of awkward looking at your feet, that kind of thing happens when you're self-absorbed. Because standing up and seeing like this is embarrassing. Like I'm doing it now, I feel a bit awkward about it, right? Because you're all looking at me. Why? Because the, the, all the eyes are on me. So I'm worried about how I look. What happens when all of the attention is focused on something else? In this case, 11 guys wearing red shorts, Right? What happens then? We forget ourselves. And all of our focus and our praise is is on something else. That's the key. To the degree that we forget ourselves and train our minds on the risen, reigning Lord Jesus, way more worthy than any guy kicking a ball around, right? To the degree that we're able to do that, we will be released from self-absorption and therefore from awkwardness and introversion. I, I think that's what's going on. So, we've, we've, as a church, we've decided that there are these three major environments that we want to function in. Ministry environments, whatever. Three, three symbols that just make it easier for us to remember what we're meant to be doing as a church. So I've got them up here. There's a circle, a triangle, and a square. The circle is what we focused on last Sunday when we weren't at church, the shared table. 
So it's a circle, kind of looks a bit like a table. It's meant, to, it's meant to evoke in our minds a sort of inward focus. So churches are often critiqued for being too inward focused. That's often the case. We still need to be inward focused though, right? It just needs to be balanced. We need to focus on caring for one another as brothers and sisters. The Bible actually makes that, that, that our top priority that first of all we see to the needs of brothers and sisters. So the shared table is about that. It's about opening our homes in the love of Jesus. This is from informal, why don't you come around for lunch after church today, to small groups, to the the shared table Sunday we do, that kind of thing, all right? Then skip ahead to that last one. The public square is all about what we do outside, the way that we give ourselves not to helping out one another but to to caring for the community around us and we want to develop that majorly this year and some exciting things are happening along those lines I'd love to share with you uh, as we go along the middle one is the gathered church and the reason it's a triangle is because the focus is not inward or outward but upward so when you come in, just train your mind now, when you come into this space and gather in this, this worshipping community, yes, you want to be mindful of those around you. Yes, you want to welcome new people who God graces us with week on week. But our ultimate focus is up. It's on him. And the more that we do that, the more that that triangle becomes pointy, away from me, And toward him, the more that happens, I believe, the more joy we will experience in our gathering together. That's all I want to say. That's what I want us to focus on this coming year. Focusing our mind on the risen Lord Jesus, which should release us from more wholehearted praise and worship. Now, lest you think, and this is, I'm going to finish on this, lest you think that this is just about, I'm just saying, let's just white knuckle it, all right? We're just going to try hard to be joyful, right? Lest you, lest you think that this is just about working ourselves up and contriving something that will never last and won't give God any honor, right? Then, then he provides us in this psalm with the foundation. He waits to the end. It's at the bottom of the, the psalm. It's the foundation, all right? He tells us it's a foundation because he begins with four. So all of this stuff that I want you to do, praising, shouting, thanksgiving, triumph, right? All of that great stuff. Four, the foundation of all of that, the Lord is good. And his faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. The Lord is good He loves us forever. He is faithful even when we're faithless. Right? All the generations of Israel were faithless. But he is faithful through all generations. Another three things you can do. Save that for tomorrow. I'm making it easy for you. This is a cheat sheet, right? The Lord is good. His love lasts forever. And his faithfulness through all generations. I got to love, I got to love, I got to love the African uh, American community that I, I, I kind of lived with for a couple of years. I got to love them really quite deeply. And I believe they can teach us a whole lot about this kind of thing. 
something that I used to hear in, in black churches um, that I attended, something I used to hear them say all the time, just casually to one another. You know, one person would say, um, God is good, and the person would answer all the time. And I thought it was kind of, you know, quaint for a little while, and then I thought it was just a little bit irritating, like, like just, just a bit basic, right? A bit um, asinine, like, can we move on from this to something a little bit more meaty? And, um, and that's to my great shame, my great shame that I look down on them for that little um, call and response. Because that, what they said to one another, is beautiful truth. That's why he makes it the foundation of all that he's been calling us to. The Lord is good all the time. That's verse 5 paraphrased. God is good all the time. If God is good and he's good all the time, then we've always got reason to praise him and thank him. That's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm hoping for. That's what I'm yearning for this year in our church. And when I say that, I mean me. I want that for me. And I want it for us as well. Let's pray together. Father, every one of us would be blessed greatly if we simply exercised thanksgiving and gratitude more often. And so I pray now that as we have heard your commandments in your word, commandments to praise you and give you thanks, that we would take them seriously, that we would eschew and, and, and rebel against the culture around us, which is all, they're always looking for stuff that they don't have. Help us to train our minds to focus on those glorious things that we have forever. I pray that you would do a powerful work by your spirit in this place, that we would leave behind all of those things that dampen our sense of joy and we would embrace those things that give voice to our affections for you. Please do it. In Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au.